about to start a new and also the last section in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in Tuesday for a while now. If you've been here for a while, you'll probably know it, or maybe you've actually forgotten <laughs> that we started the last week of Jesus' life way back in chapter 9. And that we've been going through his entrance into Jerusalem. Actually, sorry, chapter 11. Entering into Jesus' last week of his life. And for the past couple chapters, starting in chapter 12, we've been on Tuesday. Today we're going to read about what happened on Wednesday. Two days before the Passover. Two days before he was put to death. And just to give you just a little glimpse behind the scenes, I want to read for you, it's a little bit longer, John chapter 11, starting in verse 50, or rather verse, uh, yes, starting at verse 50. That he's talking about the Pharisees are trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. And one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you all know nothing. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his whole own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. When we come back, really coming back from the future and focusing into the present, what we're coming back to is a focus on Jesus' impending situation. One that he's kept on predicting, that he has come to die. Let's start in chapter 14 of Mark starting at verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the, fest, the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany... In the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. 
She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. What we just read is such a pivotal scene for understanding how Jesus was actually put on the cross. You see this scenario in which the Pharisees have been wanting to and have been seeking to kill him for a long time. But they haven't been able to. They're racking their brains in how they can do it, how they can get around doing it, especially with the fact that Passover is upon them. And when we are talking about Passover season and how many Jews were murdered in 70 AD when during the Passover the Roman armies encircled the city, there was 1.1 million people who died. Which means this city, this small city that let's say it had 25,000 people, we don't know exactly how many. Whatever it was, there was Jews from all over the world who were coming into this city during Passover to the fact that this once small city was now teeming with people, having 1.1 million people in this small city. People who were listening to the teaching of Jesus and loving what they heard. And even if they didn't really care for him, maybe they were just in caring for what he was doing for them. Healing the blind. Raising the dead back to life. Healing the sick. As the blind man said in John chapter 9, it should be obvious who this guy is, for it's never been heard that anyone has granted to a man blind since birth total clear vision. The Pharisees are really trying to navigate around something. They're trying to navigate around causing a riot. In the words of Caiaphas, it's better that one man should die on behalf of the nation than the whole nation die on account of this one man. That's the intent. That's immediately where we pick up with when we resume and bring us our focus back to the present. But how does it happen? How does it happen that people who see Jesus doing all these signs, who's being the Messiah and open to these people, how does Jesus actually get killed? What are the historical circumstances of it all? And Mark here, for maybe the last time in the Gospel of Mark, he does a flashback. And he does it with this sandwich structure that we've seen so many times by now. 
We see introduced in verses 1 and 2 the Pharisees and kind of racking their brain about what they're going to do about Jesus. And then we see this problem, their problem solved, their prayers answered with Judas Iscariot coming to them in verses 10 and 11. And Mark introduces us to this scene, the meat of this sandwich, the focal point of this text, with a story of something that actually happened earlier in the week. Something that you wouldn't really know unless we had four different Gospels. See, the scene here, verses 3 through 9, we actually find in the beginning of John chapter 12. And we see all the circumstances of this feast. We see that John chapter 11, Jesus had rose Lazarus from the dead. And they, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they throw a party. They host him as the honored guest for bringing her brother back from the dead. And that Mary is the woman at Bethany who's anointing Jesus' feet. And this happened six days earlier. See, if we look at the Gospels, if you're going to try to go for one of really precise chronological events, ironically, actually, the Gospel of John follows a pretty straight historical sequence. The thing is, is John's Gospel really almost wholly focuses on that last week. Why does Mark, and Matthew for that matter, connect this moment? Why do they both ham-fist and put this story of something that happened six days earlier right in the middle of this sandwich? Do you see the contrast that's happening? You have people at the beginning who are trying to kill Jesus, and you see exactly how their plan is accomplished as it wraps up. And the central issue of it is the issue of devotion to Jesus. You see, we have two groups of people. We have people who are totally undevoted to Jesus, and we have people who are devoted to Jesus. And we see in the midst of this, with this devotion to Jesus, we see how foolish it looks like to those who do not follow Jesus. And if we're really honest with ourselves for just a second, we see this sort of devotion to Jesus all the time. And sometimes in our hard-hearted reactions and responses, we respond to similar events And think of them, these people who are so devoted to Jesus, as fanatics. People who are obsessed. People who don't have a proper apprehension. They don't have their priorities straight. They're obsessing over something maybe they shouldn't. What we see in the picture of this woman, the person who drives Judas to betray Jesus, is a wholehearted devotion. And we can't just assume from the outset the Bible answer of who is right to this. Is the woman who's devoted her entire life savings to Jesus, has she, is she delusional? Or is the person, pers- people who reject Jesus 
delusional? The Bible answer, obviously, is Jesus. That Jesus is right. That his assessment is true. But if you saw someone who came into this room and give all their money to Evergreen, every last penny to their name, you'd probably say that person is delusional. You'd probably mock that person. And you know what? Maybe rightfully so. So there seems to be this fine line here. The line between devotion and delusion. And I want to explore that line with you this morning. And let's look first on that, let's look at this woman's devotion. This true devotion that she has. In the beginning of this flashback, six days earlier, John chapter 12, verse 1, before Passover, they had this dinner that we see that she brought. The only thing John adds here to this definition or this description of this fragrance that she has is that it was 12 ounces worth. And unfortunately, the only way I can conceive of that is like a 12-ounce can of Coke. Coca-Cola, by the way, not Coca-Cola. That's what Southerners call, or at least in Georgia, we call Coca-Cola Coke. A 12-ounce can. And it's, and I don't know really why, but the ESV translates over and over again that this is an alabaster flax of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and there, that word ointment, I think is better translated perfume or oil. Because that's what you get from nard. This is a 12-ounce flask of oil that she has. Very expensive oil. If that wasn't, you know, obvious enough, Mark tells us it's very costly. And we know exactly how much it cost. For in our story, in Mark, as it was laid to us... We're told that it's worth 300 denarii. Well, maybe here a little bit more dynamic translation would have been helpful because I don't know what a denarii is off the top of my head. A denarii was just a unit of currency in the Roman world. Unit of currency which amounted to one day's labor. So even if she's a poor person, let's account for inflation. Let's say this is $25,000 that you earn over the course of a year. Or you could just go ahead and if you want to account for inflation and for you, think of how much you make in a year. And put that price tag on this ointment. An alabaster flask, this is a stone, a marble, soft stone structure which entirely encased this which she broke the neck of it, and she didn't just take a little bit of that 12-ounce can, but she poured the whole thing on Jesus' head. And it's not a contradiction when we look at John's gospel and see that she also wiped his feet and used her hair to wipe Jesus' feet with this same ointment because she has 12 ounces worth of it. Dunking it, yes, on his head, but probably all over his body, washing his very feet with her hair. The Gospel of John is focused on her absolute love and devotion to Jesus. 
But Mark's focus is on something different. He's focused on the fact of the reason why she did it. If we look at true devotion, maybe the very first answer that we should ask ourselves is, who are we devoted to? Because you know what, there's lots of people who are sincere worshipers of their religion. People who sincerely follow and held sincerely held beliefs. But we call people who fly into planes delusional because of, yes, in part of what they believe God is calling them to do that has no basis in scripture, of course, but also the man they claim to follow, Muhammad, is not the man he says he is. He's not a prophet of God. If you read the Quran, you can see that he doesn't even understand the first thing about who God is and how he's revealed himself. I think I've told you before that the Quran thinks, or the writer of the Quran, believes that the Trinity, as Christians believe it, is Father, Son, and Mary. He doesn't even get the Christian religion accurately, let alone true Christianity. You read the Old Testament Bible studies, stories and he gets those wrong. He's not a credible source. Following people like that is delusional. We have as Christians a credible faith based on eyewitness accounts derived from people who saw Jesus do miraculous things and did miraculous things themselves to attest of their witness. True devotion has a true object of worship. But true devotion is not just marked by who we are following after, but it's also evidence in this very woman seeing how she serves, how she gives. This woman gives this alabaster flask, and maybe you should be asking yourself, where does Mary of Bethany, brother of Lazarus, where does she come into this one-year labor's worth of perfume? Ultimately, that's what it is. We're told in John's Gospel that the very smell of it, after she poured out this 12-ounce can resulted in filling the whole house with this smell. I think I might have gotten a headache from such strong smell. This is spike nard that she's using here from India. Where on earth is this coming from? Well, this probably was a family heirloom. Maybe she was holding on to this as her dowry price. Maybe she was holding or got it as her dowry price. This would have been something that she would have kept, not just to use, maybe at her own funeral, if she was lucky enough, but in times of distress, this could have very but easily been her savings account. She didn't have money in gold, and she didn't have money in bank in which she could store things to keep her wealth in times of trouble, in times of distress. She had this object that held her equity, And she saw in this moment, not using it for herself and her own costly funeral, not for maybe a wedding, not for times of security, drought when she might not have 
money in the future. She's using her entire savings. And you know, if we were using our money, when it comes to serving Jesus, we would probably, you know, we'd probably make, a, make it into a screw-on cap, not break the top of it. And after we've unscrewed it, we would just pour a little bit on Jesus' head. Just, you know, he doesn't need a lot for the full effect, you know. It's expensive perfume, and we don't want to make the house all smelly. She doesn't use just a portion of it. She uses the whole thing. If any one of us was there, and we had no idea who Jesus was, Every one of us would think she's a fool. Using her whole savings account on this, this one moment. Using her whole savings, $25,000, $50,000, whatever your amount is, and pouring it out for this one moment. This would have looked delusional. And even though we're told that the person who specifically said this was Judas. I'm glad we have Matthew and Mark to tell us that Judas wasn't the only one. You know, I kind of find myself actually falling into a similar vein. When you see people sitting around you or people having bitter thoughts, doesn't that seem to communicate to you that same bitterness? When people talk about how terrible work is, doesn't that tend to provoke in you in your own sense of bitterness about your job and the different things that are wrong about it? Judas was just one person who said, what on earth is she doing? And provokes the thought in the other, the other disciples there, of, yeah, what is she doing? She's wasting her money. And I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty frugal person. And when I see people wasting their money, I don't know why, but I kind of take it personally a little bit. And it gets me angry. It makes me want to mock this person. But the reality is, is it seems like there's only one person who truly knows who Jesus is. Truly knows what Jesus is worth truly knows that Jesus is worth our wholehearted service. And she puts her money with her, where her mouth is. That's a hard thing, isn't it? It's really easy to say, I love Jesus. It's really easy to say, I follow Jesus. I'm a Christian. It's another thing entirely to devote your life to that task. It's entirely different to live a life that's so marked of devotion to Jesus that the people around you consider you a fool. That's a difficult thing to endure. True devotion endures such criticisms. Stretch true devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ causes us to endure pain, to endure suffering, to endure rejection from our friends and family. Haven't we already been told by Jesus that following him 
means picking up your cross daily? That Jesus did not come to sow peace amongst the world, but actually in his first coming, he's come, and his coming has came, I keep saying that word, his coming has actually sowed division between people who follow Jesus and who are not, that it will divide households, it will divide parents from children, it will divide family from family, it will divide you from your friends. This woman sacrificed it all. And she did it, either knowingly or unknowingly, for a very particular service. For a very particular reason. A moment in history. Non-repeatable, by the way. Jesus was going to the cross. And he explains his first explanation for why it is not foolish. This dividing line between devotion and delusion is divided by... Oh, I have chapter 13 in front of me. I wonder why. It's like I've been there for a while. That he has, in verse 6, he says, Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. to me. For you will always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them. He's quoting the text that we just had Steve read. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. In that text, we're told that it's to be for you as the land of Israel, that there's no poor person among you. In verses 1 through 2. Unless you get some weird idea of it as if the promised land was going to have no poverty and it was going to be heaven on earth. Just later on in verse 11, by the time he gets there, he says, But the poor will always be among you. And you are commanded to have an open hand. To be generous. See, the situation of Israel is the same situation that we see in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. We see the church formed. People come to Christ. They come and worship God. And what do they do immediately? It's as if there's no poor among them. For they're all sharing with anyone who has need. You know, right at the beginning of Acts, what we see in the new Christian community is exactly what Israel was always called to be. But never was. Constantly God chided his people for ignoring the poor. God's people, though, on day one, sacrificed their needs for anyone who was in need among them. And it was as if the poor wasn't even known, at least within these four walls. And Mark adds something that, that Matthew doesn't. He includes that phrase, that whenever you want, you can do good for them. You see, you might read this, and reading this fast, you might say that Jesus is somehow dismissing poverty. Saying, well, you'll have always the poor with you. 
And always our response to that, hearing that is, well, if they're always going to exist, if poverty is always going to be out in the world, that means I shouldn't do anything about it. Jesus reached the opposite conclusion. The Old Testament in Deuteronomy 15 told us the opposite, opposite conclusion. The fact that poverty will always be with us is the very reason why we are commanded by God not optional generosity, but we're told to take care of one another. And I'm so thankful that I am in a church, that I belong to Evergreen Community Church, where I see this happening almost on a monthly basis. Being a member here, even for a year, what I see in our church is a people who, whenever anyone has need, that need is met immediately. A food train comes up and supports with food, with prayer, with love. And that is something that's so commendable about us. We're really an Acts 2 church, I believe. And I'm thankful for you guys. But Jesus' point here has a different emphasis Jesus commands us to give to the poor. God tells us to have an open hand and supply the needs of our neighbors. But the reality is, is that verse 7 ends. But in the ESV, it has a different direction. It says, but you will not always have me. In the Greek, it's actually fronted. Jesus says, but me you will not always have. The reality is, is that Jesus was about to be crucified. He was about to die on the cross. And even to this day, we don't, with our devotion, we're unable to serve Jesus directly. We have the joy and privilege of Matthew chapter 25. We see in Matthew chapter 25, one of my favorite verses, sections, by the way, of how chapter 25 ends. We see Jesus when he comes in glory on the final day of judgment. And the angels are with him. He separates the sheep from the goats. And he does it on the basis there of how you treated his people. He said, when you saw me thirsty, when you saw me poor, you supplied for all my needs. And his people on the last day will will say, when did I see you, Jesus? And he says, when you, did the, when you did this, when you fed the least of my brothers, you did this for me. And the goats marked by those without that open hand, without that sense of generosity, who just lets their brother go on with their life. That those are the goats. But what this woman has is something that we all wish we could have, which is to serve Jesus directly. That's what she did. See, I don't expect anyone, and I actually ask, please do not pour your life savings into that. I don't think it'll fit, maybe with a check it'd fit in that. Don't do it. Today's the day in which we live amongst the poor among us. Today is the day in which we have opportunity that Jesus spoke of to supply the needs of the saints. But she lived in a day 
when she was face to face with Jesus. And he was worthy of her life savings. You know, there's a day where we're all going to stand before Jesus. We're all going to see him face to face. We're all going to ask ourselves the question, or really look back at our life. And dear Christian, we'll all regret those moments when we didn't have such a heart of devotion, when we didn't live our all for Jesus, when we chose instead to live for something else. See, this devotion there is an understanding of Jesus' true worth. I know I waited a long time to fill that blank. Under, true devotion is understanding Jesus' true worth. Maybe that last little phrase we could think about. of Is it worth it to serve Jesus? Look what she got. Verse 9 we get one of Jesus's very rare in the Gospel of Marks. Truly I say to you, wherever the Gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Memory of her anointing him for his burial. Preparing him directly for the agony that he was going to go through. And yes, Jesus was prepared after his death by Joseph of Arimathea. But that wasn't a legal course of action. Criminals were not allowed to be prepared after their death. God is, in a sense, using this opportunity to use this woman to give him a proper burial, despite the humiliation he's about to endure on the cross. Just as an aside, even as Jesus is being humbled and goes to his lowest point, even there Jesus is being exalted. Through providence. And Jesus says that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, in memory of her, this will be told. That's why it's included in your gospel the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Matthew. Just by this sermon occurring, Jesus' words are coming true. And whatever act of devotion you give to Jesus, realize that your Father in heaven, who you've made it your aim to please, it might not be written down in sacred scripture, but God knows. God will reward his people on the day of judgment. And that's where we're supposed to be living for. This is why whatever amount we donate, however much we give, however much we serve, however much we endure... Setting Christ as our number one priority will never leave us shortchanged. But the reality is, is that not everyone sees Jesus this way. Judas, we're told, we're told that he made this statement, John chapter 12, verse 6, he said this, that why was this ointment not sold and given to the poor? Not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But let me remind you that Judas was not the only one complaining. This should show us that we do not know how to read people's hearts. 
ultimately. We don't see what people are going on. But you know what? To go with Mark's point, we tend to, when we look at sin, we tend to excuse it for good reasons like this, don't we? When we sin, or when we just don't see, we see complete devotion to Jesus as irrational and illogical. Maybe it's okay for a missionary, but not for me. We justify our sin. You know, we usually justify our sins. We're pretty smart people. We justify it with good things. But deep down, we know that it's not. That all it is is an excuse. That all it is is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And Judas gave unwittingly an answer to the Pharisees' question. Verse 1 the Pharisees are looking how they might arrest him. In what manner were they trying to arrest Jesus? ESV says by stealth and to kill him. That word there for stealth, dulo or dalo, what he's saying there, that word as I look throughout scripture as it's translated in various ways, it's almost always deceit. The mark of an unbeliever who suppressed the truth of unrighteousness, who has their mind filled with all sorts of manby, et manby, malice, envy. You see where I combine those. Malice, envy, envy, strife, deceit, wickedness. They were seeking for a way in which they could set a trap, deceive Jesus, get him in this situation where they could do it, yes, by stealth, but also they knew exactly what underhanded, wicked way they were going about it. And Judas said, when he came up to them, he came in order to betray them. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, verse 15, that he asked, and when he first came to them, he said, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? True delusion is always marked by valuing the wrong things. True delusion is always marked by valuing the wrong things. And you know what often we value? It's not anything that's uncommon to people. It's usually money. It's usually money that we devalue Jesus and we put in pl place of him. We see Judas here, who was a thief, who was using this as his pilfering the tithing, the offering for his own benefit. He used it to supply himself. But you know what? He was probably not doing it for just a silver coin, which is the word there. Money there is silver, and we know how many pieces of silver... 30 pieces. We do it for all the things money can buy. We do it for pleasure. We do it to buy love. We use money to serve ourselves. I had a conversation early this week with someone and talking about pursuing riches and wanting to have a really good job 
And having this conversation, reflecting on it, especially in this text, I think I gave him only partially good advice. And you know what, just a half-truth is not a good truth, by the way. It is true what I told him, which is, you're fine if you make it, if your rule in life is making it your aim to please God with whatever wealth you make. It's fine to make money, to use it generously, to use it to serve. But we need to hear the warning, the warning of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, where Paul warns us and says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless, harmful desires. Let's add delusional desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through, and listen carefully, dear Christian, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Judas would regret this. His betrayal of Jesus, an innocent man, would pierce him to the heart. And he would take it to the ultimate extent. But it wasn't a sorrow that leads to repentance. It wasn't a sorrow that sees the goodness of God. It was the sorrow that leads to despair. Whatever money is promising you, whatever hope it's holding out to you, whatever you think you're going to gain by clinging to the riches of this world or to your temporary pleasures, it's not going to serve you. It's not going to do you any good. And every Christian needs to hear that word. When we see this, we see that he's promised money. We see that he betrays Jesus. We see how, if we saw this, if we paint this scenario of someone using their all, devoting everything they are to following Jesus, the reality is, is that this true devotion, we should be disgusted by it. We should be disgusted by the widow giving her might to support a religious work system that is not about Jesus. Something should offend us when we see the poor donating all their work, not to Christ and to serving Him, but to supporting some prosperity gospel preacher who's promising them a better life here and now instead of eternal life. But, if it's about Jesus, if we truly understand how good He is, 
we see that no devotion that we could possibly give God is enough. You know, the reality is, is that, Jesus, that Mary gave to the poor. She gave to the poor in front of her. For 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, and this is Paul here in chapter 8, motivating Christians to give to the poor. So let's not take it out of context. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The reality is, is we are devoted to God. Our devotion to Christ is not something that makes us or produces in us a relationship with God. Seeing Christ for who He is is the very thing that produces that devotion we see. It's not reversed. We don't live lives devoted to God, hoping that one day we will see His goodness. That's a fool's errand. But for those who have had their eyes open, who see Christ for who He is, we can't help but living for Him. What we see is the God who's held out before us in Isaiah chapter 55, where God chastises His people. Not for living luxuriously, but for living for bread that doesn't satisfy. For going after water that will leave you thirsty again. When God gives to every sinner a free offer of forgiveness, of mercy that is found in Him alone. And He chastises His people for not going for the good bread, for not going for the good waters, the living waters, for the bread of life that is found in Christ Jesus alone. We all need some heroes, don't we? We all need heroes of the faith. And amazingly, we have it in this simple woman who gives her all in serving Jesus. And that, pro- pro- that should provoke all of us, if we see the worth of Jesus, to follow after Him, to be devoted to Him. You know what? Yes, with all our money, with all our time, with all our resources. And it should be an indication to us of where we stand if we don't see that He's worth all of that. And he truly is worthy. Let's go to the Lord and ask that he would help us to see his worthiness. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark. That you have not left us in our poverty. That you have not left us with the wages of sin, which is death leaving us with a debt that we could not possibly repay to you. But in your Son, 
You've given us the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Lord, may we heed the warning that's so obviously apparent in Judas himself that the, root of mo- lo- that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Lord, may you purge the love of this world and the thing that it offers from us. Lord, we don't want suffering to come into our lives, but as suffering is what you use to peel our eyes off the thing this world offers us and causes us to lift our eyes to the Lord who can make all things right, who hears us in our agony, Lord, we ask that you would do all things, that you would use anything for anyone in this room who does not have eyes to see and ears to hear the goodness of our God, that he satisfies our every craving, that he's worth our wholehearted devotion. And may your Holy Spirit, giving us eyes to see, may we put our money where our mouth is. May we live for you. May we show how weakly and how how light our grasp is around the things of this world that we're willing to release our hands to the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we're willing to release our time. And we do this because Christ did that for us. Christ did not count his riches as something to be used for his own advantage. He didn't use his own person for his own advantage, but he used it to serve us. Lord, we are so thankful for that. We pray that as the rest of this worship and the rest of this week, that you would constantly, as we read your word and seek after you, that we would constantly grow more and more seeing the image of Christ and how worthy he is. It's in Jesus Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.